Good morning, happy Sabbath. So good to be with you today in the house of the Lord. And wasn't that wonderful special music? I want to thank the Promise Bells for that special music. And do come again. We enjoy having you and want to welcome the parents as well that came out today. Let's bow our heads together as we pray this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to come apart from the cares of this life, to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray that as we open your word, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would impress our minds. Speak to us, we pray. Hide me behind the cross. May Jesus be uplifted and Christ be seen. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today we begin a new five-part series of messages that we've entitled The Great Controversy. I know I've been away for a few weeks, a couple weeks on vacation, which was much needed, by the way. And then last weekend I was in San Antonio for some board meetings, but it's good to be back with you. And I will be in the pulpit consistently all the way up till camp meeting. We'll be doing a five-part series of messages that I'm very excited about. It's called The Great Controversy, and we'll be answering some very fundamental questions about the origin of evil, why a God of love, or how could a God of love allow sin and suffering, and why does God allow evil to continue so long? And so we're going to attempt, by the grace of God, to answer some of these questions from the Word of God. And today is part one in this series of messages, and we will be looking at the book of Revelation. And the title of the book, Revelation, implies that it is a revealing. It is something that is to be disclosed, and there are many people in the Christian community today that assume that the book of Revelation, ironically, which means to disclose, is a book that is shrouded in mystery. How many of you heard people say, we just can't understand the book of Revelation? Well, the title itself tells you that it is something that we can understand by the grace of God, and Revelation chapter 1, verse 3 tells us that there is a blessing for those who read and understand the book of Revelation. Before we go on, I want to invite you to take out your study guide, which is inside your bulletin. If you don't have one, Daniel's there in the back, can get you a copy. This is a brief Well, it's not exactly brief today, but it's an outline of today's presentation, and it will make it easier for you to follow along in our study for today. The book of Revelation is not written in chronological order. I remember as a child trying to read the book of Revelation, and I noticed that it did not go chronologically. It is written in a literary structure called a chiasm. A chiasm is simply a structure where the first part parallels the last part, the second part parallels the second to last part, the third part parallels the corollary section, and in the center of this literary structure is chapter 12. So when you read the book of Revelation, it's helpful to see that it's written in kind of a poetic structure that apexes in the center, 
and we will proceed with our study guide today as we get some background to our passage that we are going to delve into. The book of Revelation is structured as a chiasm, a literary structure that we've seen right here. And the center of the book of Revelation is chapter 12. And the center of the center are verses 7 through 10, which was our scripture reading for today. And we're going to begin by looking at our first study question today. And in this series, it's going to be more of a study than a sermon. So we're going to look at some questions which outline our message for today. Question number one, where did the war begin? And as our scripture reading today brought out, and war broke out where? In heaven, Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. The Bible tells us that the conflict that we are experiencing here on earth actually broke out in heaven, And there were two parties that were involved in this conflict. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. And so we're going to look at who these characters are before we proceed. Who is Michael? Michael, Mikael, literally means one who is like God. And the way that you understand who Michael is, is by comparing a few passages. Michael is mentioned a few times in the Old and New Testament. And in Jude 1 verse 9, the Bible says, yet Michael, the, what does it say? The archangel, which is chief among the angels in contending with the devil disputed with the body of Moses. So Michael is also called the archangel or chief among angels the angels. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, the Bible says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. So when Jesus comes a second time, the Bible tells us that the voice of the archangel, we put it together with Jude chapter 1, verse 9, who is Michael, is the voice that we will hear, and if we are dead, it is the voice that will raise us from the dead. Do you see that, yes or no? The voice of the archangel is going to raise the dead, and that archangel is called Michael, one who is like God. When you look at another passage in John chapter 5, verse 25 through 29, the Bible also states another aspect of who will be the one raising the dead. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice. So when you put these three verses together, it's logical and reasonable to conclude that Michael, the archangel, is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Michael is Jesus Christ. And when you look in the Old Testament, you will notice that there are several instances where the Bible says, the angel of the Lord. In Judges chapter 13, Manoah and his wife, who were to have Samson, are visited by an angel. And I want you to notice 
the dialogue between the angel of God and Manoah and his wife. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came to the woman again as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. Then the woman ran in haste and told her husband and said to him, Look, the man who came to me the other day has just now appeared to me. So Manoah rose and followed his wife. And when he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Remember in the New Testament, Jesus said before Abraham was, I am, and the Jews took up stones to stone him because that was a reference to the Old Testament where God was telling Moses his name and he said, I am that I am. And Jesus was alluding, not just alluding, but saying that he was none other than God himself. So he says, I am, but not only this, in verse 17 through 18, that Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? That when your words come to pass, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And we have another clue in this, verses 21 and 22. When the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die because we have seen God. Who was it that appeared to Manoah and his wife? It was God, Jesus Christ. And I believe that Jesus took on the form of an angel, and his name was Mikael, Michael, one who is like God. This is strongly supported by Scripture. And so this war is between Michael, Jesus, and his angels against the dragon and his angels. And who is the dragon? You can see the answer to this in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. So the dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So this controversy began in heaven, and it was between Michael, Jesus, and his angels, and the dragon and his angels. There was an insurrection. There was a rebellion in heaven, and this rebellion was so deep that the devil was able to get some of the angels, the Bible tells us one-third of the angels, to join in this rebellion. Which leads us to our next question, where did Satan come from? Some people say, hey, perhaps God created the devil. The Bible tells us the answer to this in Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 14 through 15. It goes all the way back to the beginning when Lucifer was created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in all your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. God did not create a devil, amen? God created a perfect being, and he was 
the angel that stood closest to God. As we look at the Ark of the Covenant, you'll notice that there are two angels standing right in the presence of God. Lucifer was that angel, and he was perfect in the day that he was created until iniquity was found in him. And in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14 tells us, the name of this angel that later became known as the devil and Satan, how are you fallen from heaven? O Lucifer, son of the morning, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will be like the Most High. Lucifer wanted to be like God. He wanted to take the place of God. And this is how Lucifer became later on known as the devil. It is the mystery of iniquity, how a perfect being in a perfect place could become the devil and Satan. Some people have asked the question, how could such a beautiful being become the devil? I heard this illustration once. How bad can a bad cow be? I tried to think of some bad things a cow could do. They are fundamentally limited, right? Uh, break out of the pen, uh, not produce milk. I, I don't know. The capacity is limited, and as long as the cow produces milk, uh, it's a good cow. The capacity of a cow for goodness and badness, evil, is fundamentally limited by the nature and, I would say, the intelligence of the cow. A cow can only be so bad. A cow can only be so good. Now, let's move on a little bit. How bad can a bad dog be? I have two dogs, and I was tempted to put a picture of mine up there, but, I mean, yeah, go to the bathroom on the couch, tear up the couch, not sit on command. A dog can be badder than a, a dog can be badder than a cow. A little bit more capacity there, but limited as well. Let me ask you this, how bad can a human be? You see, when God created man, God created man with the capacity, I believe, for eternal development. God created man in the image of God with the capacity throughout the eternal ages to more and more reflect the image of God. And with that capacity also comes the capacity for evil. Because as Albert Einstein said, he said, there is no such thing as darkness. Darkness is simply the absence of light. There is no dark, there's no such thing as cold. Cold is simply the absence of heat. And I would add, in a moral sense, evil is the absence of good. You, there's a perversion that takes place. Now, how bad can a human be? Now, when you think about it, how bad can a genius be? 
We go on a step further. How bad can an angel be with an incredible capacity for good? The Bible tells us that God created man a little lower than the angels. And so here we see that there is the potential for evil because of the capacity of the angel. And this is called the mystery of iniquity, how a beautiful being in paradise can become so perverted and degraded that he becomes the very embodiment of evil and debauchery himself. We will go into the notion of choice and free will in another presentation in a subsequent message in our series, but this shows us that the potential and the capacity is there just in the fact that this being was created and stood in the very presence of God Himself. Now, I've often asked this question, why didn't God just exterminate Satan immediately? God knows everything. He knows the ultimate fruit that is going to develop of the seeds of dissension that were sown in perfection. But why didn't God, who knows everything, who is all-powerful, the moment that Lucifer in his mind started to think prideful thoughts, started to think of, about an insurrection, in a rebellion in heaven, and the moment that he started to disclose the, to the angels his evil intentions, why didn't God just pulverize Lucifer immediately? Now, there is a quotation from Patriarchs and Prophets that is quite insightful, page 42, had he, Lucifer, been immediately blotted out of existence, some would have served God from fear rather than from love. Imagine, Lucifer is talking to another angel, asking questions about the government of God, asking questions about the character of God. He says, you know what? I don't think that God is being fully transparent. He's kind of shady. I think that I could do a better job. And then suddenly, a bolt of lightning comes from the air, and there's just a dark spot on the heavenly pavement. And the entire universe, from that standpoint on, would be like, well, I guess I won't question God anymore, or look what happened to Lucifer. But there would have been a nagging question in the back of the consciousness of many created and intelligent beings, maybe God is hiding something. Maybe there was something to Lucifer's claims. Because up to this point, the government of God, the administration of God, was all that they knew. This was the first time that a person, a free moral agent, had the audacity to stand up and question God. Now, this is a question that I've asked. Why has God allowed evil to continue? After centuries of war, centuries of famine, centuries of bloodshed, why has God allowed this phenomena of sin and suffering to continue on century after century? And a part of this answer is found there in your study guide. I want to read a few of these quotations. This is from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 43. God permitted Satan to carry forward his work until the spirit of disaffection ripened into active revolt. It was necessary for his plans to be fully developed 
that their true nature and tendency might be seen by all. Until fully developed, it could not be made to appear the evil thing it was. His disaffection would not be seen to be rebellion. Even the loyal angels could not fully discern his character or see to what his work was leading. So the claims of Lucifer were so deceptive, so insidious, so shrouded in mystery that God chose to allow the administration of Lucifer to develop to a certain state of maturity. That was the choice that God made. And God is looking from an eternal standpoint of security. I want to read from the Adventist Commentary, Volume 7, page 1107. But they could not interfere, for in the great controversy between good and evil, Satan must be given every opportunity to develop his true character, that the heavenly universe and the race for whom Christ was giving his life might see the righteousness of God's purpose. Those under the control of the enemy must be allowed to reveal the principles of his government. I want to read on, Patriots and Prophets, 42 and 43. Satan's rebellion was to be a lesson to the universe through all the coming ages, a perpetual testimony to the nature of sin and its terrible results. The working out of Satan's rule, its effects upon both men and angels, would show what must be the fruit of setting aside the divine authority. Thus, the history of this terrible experiment of rebellion was to be a perpetual safeguard to all holy beings to prevent them from being deceived as to the nature of transgression, to save them from committing sin and suffering its penalty. In summary, this earth's history will be a reference point throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity, an example of what happens when someone chooses an alternative way to God's way. And I think that all of us in this room who have been born into this controversy would agree that God's way is better. Amen? We can see that Satan's administration is not the best way. Moving on to question number four. What is the central issue in the war between Christ and Satan? What is this war about? What is the central issue in the controversy between Christ and Satan? This is in your study guide. I want you to fill in the blank. From the beginning of the great controversy in heaven, it was Satan's purpose to overthrow the law of God. It was to accomplish this that he entered upon the rebellion against the Creator, and though he was cast out of heaven, he continued the same warfare upon the earth. Why against the law of God? And when you look at the Ark of the Covenant, I have a picture of the Ark of the Covenant here on the screen. This is a model of God's throne. In the center there is where God, the Shekinah glory is, and the two angels are the covering cherubs that stand closest to God. Lucifer was one of these angels, and Moses was instructed by God to place the Ten Commandments underneath the mercy seat, inside the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I want you to think about the implications of that Ten Commandments, those tables of stone being placed underneath the very throne of God. The implication is this. 
the very foundation of the government of God is his moral law. And the devil knew this. In order to attack the government of God, he attacked the very law of God. I want to read this, Signs of the Times, August 27, 1902. In this controversy, much was to be involved. Vast interests were at stake before the inhabitants of the heavenly universe were to be answered the questions, is God's law imperfect, in need of amendment or abrogation, or is it immutable? Is God's government in need of change, or is it stable? Satan sought to make it appear that he was working for the liberty of the universe. He was determining to make his arguments so varied, so deceptive, so insidious that everyone would be convinced that God's law was tyrannical. This is Satan's claim. And how many people in the Christian community have heard the same lie which originated back in heaven from the devil himself and Christians today are buying into the notion that God's law has been done away. God's law cannot be kept. God's law is unreasonable. It's impossible to keep God's law. That's what many people, even in the Christian community, believe. Well, this is actually buying in to Satan's argument in the great controversy. I want to move on. Desire of Ages, 781. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan has declared that the law of God could not be obeyed. Let me read that again. Satan has declared that the law of God could not be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Here we have it. The central issue in the great controversy is against the law of God because it is the foundation of God's government. Now, when we go to our last question, why is Satan so concerned about overthrowing God's law? What does the law of God really represent? Some people assume that God's law is legalism. Some people assume that God's law is something that is nailed to the cross, that God's law is an Old Testament relic. But the Bible tells us that God is love. Amen? God is the definition of love. It is the essence of God, the nature of God, the definition of God. God is love. And friends, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is actually selfishness. And love is selflessness. The epitome of selflessness was when Jesus died on the cross. Ultimate self-sacrifice. So God is the very embodiment of love. And notice what the Bible says, Matthew 22, 37 through 40. His law is love. The lawyer came to Jesus and said, how do you sum up the commandments? And he quoted the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, and thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, your all your soul, and all your mind, and thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. The very essence of God's love, law is love. And if you love your neighbor, you won't kill him. Amen. You won't steal from him. You won't commit adultery. If you love God, you'll keep the Sabbath. You won't have any other gods before you. 
And I read one quotation that says that God's Ten Commandments are not really an arbitrary notion. It is really an embodiment of promises. If you have God in your heart, you will not kill. Amen? You will not steal. They are promises. So His law is love. It is a transcript of God's character. As we go to our study guide, God's law is a transcript of God's character. God's Ten Commandments is His character embodied and in written form. That is what God's law really is. And when Satan attacked the law of God, he was really attacking the character of God, the foundation of his administration. In the end of time, the Bible tells us that this is what God wants to do. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God wants to write His law in our hearts. And that law is the embodiment of love, His character, the essence of God's nature. You and I are in the midst of a great controversy. And we have the opportunity and privilege to choose whose side we will cast our lot with this morning. Will we cast it on the side of God or on the side of Satan? And as Joshua said, choose you this day whom you will serve. And my prayer for us this morning, as we go through this series and as we look at the issues in the conflict between Christ and Satan, that each one of us will make the fundamental choice to put our lot on the side of Christ. Amen? Let's stand together as we prepare to close here this morning in the quietness of our hearts, every head bowed and eyes closed in prayerful meditation. You've heard the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart this morning, and if there is someone here that wants to say, Lord, I want to be on God's side and not the devil's side, you want to say, Lord Jesus, I want to accept Jesus as my personal Savior. You can do that today. You can leave this room knowing that you have Jesus in your heart, knowing that you have the assurance of salvation, and you want to say, Lord, I want to cast my lot on God's side. I want to invite you to raise your hand here today. Come into my heart. God bless every one of you. Each one of these decisions are being marked in heaven. My final appeal is this. There is an area of your life that you need special prayer for. I want to invite you to come forward. There's an area of your life that is a challenge that you need deliverance in, and you want to say, Lord, I need your power in this area of my life. Jesus saves, friends. Jesus restores. And today, you want to say, I need help. Perhaps this area of your life is the only area is, is an area that only God knows, and He does. And you want to say today, Lord, please, by coming forward, I am admitting that I need your intervention in my life. God bless you, friends. Let's bow our heads for prayer.
Father in heaven, we thank you today for Jesus. We thank you for the promise that you will write your law in our hearts and in our minds. This character of Christ that you promised to reproduce in each one of our hearts. I pray for every hand that was raised today. We want to be on the side of Christ. I pray that you would come into every heart, restore and save by your grace. I pray for the individuals that have come forward here today. Lord, you know what this area of our life is, and we pray that you would grant power from on high. We claim the victory, not in our own strength, but in the strength of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May you deliver us. May you restore us by your grace. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.